0: to WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron. Joining me on this portion of the show called Caregiver SOS on air is Dr. Allison Reese. She is an associate professor at NYU School of Medicine, the Winthrop Research Institute at the NYU Winthrop Hospital. Carol Zorniel on a special assignment today. She has spent a lot of her time over the last several weeks working on COVID-19, uh, part of the WellMed Medical Management and Charitable Foundation effort uh, on behalf of our uh, many patients and others who are faced with the same uh, situation that uh, Allison and her colleagues have seen uh, in New York. And uh, Dr. Reese, thanks for coming on and joining us on uh, Caregiver SOS on Air.
1: Well I'm so glad to be here and to perhaps be able to offer some help and advice. And also to mention that um, part of my background is being on the advisory board of the Alzheimer's Foundation of America, which is a tremendous resource for caregivers.
0: There's no question about that. And uh, a number of people uh, who are caregivers for folks with dementia, uh, Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia need all the help and support and knowledge and information uh, they can get. And one of the challenges, as you know, is... A lot of caregivers don't reach out for help.
1: I think that is so true. I think that the need to feel autonomy and ability to handle things is so strong in a caregiver. And also that personal relationship to the person for whom they're caring that is so vital Um, makes them feel like they really need to just, you know, kind of, take it all in and handle it themselves. But, you know, we're out here, and, and when you need us, we want you to come, and we want you to, to get that support that you need.
0: So tell me, a little girl grows up in Brooklyn, becomes a doctor, that being you. How does that happen?
1: You know what? That happens by absolute focus and determination. Because when I grew up in Brooklyn, especially women were not encouraged to do that, um, We were, uh, I was particularly by my parents, who were very loving people, but they had kind of the idea that um, that was not really a good course of study for a woman, that I would be better off to do something that left me more time to have a family, which, by the way, I have two beautiful children, so I managed to do that as well. That's
0: cool. And becoming a, a doctor is the dream of many parents for their son and for their daughter, maybe a nurse.
1: I think, yeah, teacher, my parents thought, you know, they saw that I really liked to communicate and help people. So they they had those ideas for me. But I really um, had my own version of what I wanted for my life. And I have to say this, that the inspiration that I had as a child was Star Trek, because I watched that show from when I was a very young girl, and that show made it possible for anyone to be anything it was so ahead of its time and I was inspired to feel like you can dream you can you can choose you are not limited
0: boy that's pretty cool and one of the things that knocks me out about your background and experience you're not only a physician but a scientist. 25 years experience in basic and translational research, did a residency in internal medicine, but you've devoted a lot of work uh, to the cell and molecular biology uh, and to uh, degenerative diseases uh, like Alzheimer's. And and you said something to me that's certainly understandable, but very sad. A lot of that research across this country is on hold while we look for an answer to COVID-19 and the norovirus.
1: That is correct, because right now we are putting every bit of our energy and our efforts and funneling that into research and treatment of this pandemic. So a lot of our labs are closed and our people are being funneled into other areas. Um, so I'm a hundred percent COVID-19 work right now. And I understand the need to do that. Um, and I've had to repurpose myself, which is a challenge as well to, you know, open up to something that's different and learn and work on something that's outside my general comfort zone. And i um, doing that because that's where I'm really needed. But I want to see the world go back to some semblance of normal and back to my work of trying to find a way to cure and treat Alzheimer's disease.
0: I've got a good friend who is a specialist in pain and pain uh... Uh, patients dealing with pain. She's a physician. Uh, uh, Dr. Lynn, who said to me the other day, we were talking about just what you're talking about. I I want it the way it was. And then she laughed and she said, the sad thing is the new normal will never look like the old normal. Everything's going to change.
1: I think so. I think a lot of things that we did and took for granted are going to have to be you know, relearned in in new habits. Just the other day, you know, I went out to take out my trash and I didn't put the mask on. And I realized that I didn't put the mask on. And I ran back in the house and I realized that, you know, for the foreseeable future, I'm going to have to now really retrain myself and that mask has to go on before I go out the door.
0: A couple weeks ago, we interviewed a woman who works for a large bank here in San Antonio where I'm based, and she laughed and she said, of all the things she thought she would never tell a bank customer, remember, when you come to the bank, wear your mask.
1: You know, I thought of that, too, because when I went to the bank and then they look at your driver's license to identify you, and I'm thinking to myself, well, are you sure it's me?
0: And if you wear sunglasses, you're in bigger trouble, right? Exactly. Well, I want to remind folks who may have just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zernial, our co-host on Special Assignment. We're talking with Dr. Allison Reese. Uh, She's an associate professor at the NYU School of Medicine up in uh, the Big Apple, New York City. Grew up in Brooklyn, and we're uh, going to segue into a a look at COVID-19, the coronavirus, and uh, the kind of things especially that caregivers should be aware of, and, and I, I had a chance to look at a, a YouTube video that you did that was very interesting, and for those who are listening who may be caregivers, uh, uh, Dr. Reese, what are the kind of things they should think about in this new normal?
1: Well, you know, one of the biggest issues is how this is a moving target, and if you're following the news and the media and the updates that things are changing as we learn more, and as I'm working on learning about it for myself. I'm actually writing up a whole telemedicine manual with my colleagues on how to how to treat COVID-19. You have to find the things that are kind of um, enduring that you need to know that haven't changed. And the important things are to avoid the spread of the virus. It is very contagious, no matter what What way we look at it and what new studies come out, it's really clear that it's contagious. And not only that, it is contagious several days before a person shows symptoms. And some people won't ever show symptoms. There's a lot of viral shedding that goes on. The primary way that it is spread is through droplets in the air. Because when people sneeze or cough or speak, the spray of those droplets gets into Uh, another person's respiratory tract, and they can um, catch the disease. So we want to limit that droplet spread. We also want to prevent droplets from getting anywhere near our face or our eyes, and that's why things to do are to wear the mask when you are outside to keep surfaces clean and your hands clean, and don't touch your face with your hands unless you've cleaned your hands. And this is the tough one for the caregiver and the Alzheimer's patient and all of us because we sub unconsciously, we don't even think about it. We touch our hands to our face so frequently, it's just a natural thing. And we have to try to be vigilant about only doing that after we've washed our hands. So keeping clean surfaces, keeping clean hands, doing that hand washing thoroughly. And one thing, again, that we can assure you is if you wash your hands with soap and water for that singing of Happy Birthday twice or whatever song gives you the adequate amount of time, the virus doesn't survive soap. The outer coating dissolves and the virus will be disarmed. So you can feel comfortable that you can wash it and get it off.
0: I told that to my, I've got a little girl, eight-year-old, Uh, Reagan, and I was telling her to sing Happy Birthday twice when she washes her hands, which she proceeded to do and was able to sing Happy Birthday in like seven seconds. (laughs) And I said, no, Reagan, slowly, sing it slowly.
1: And I think that sometimes, you know, people might be able to find other songs that they like, and uh, many of our older Patients may have other favorites, but whatever way brings you to be able to do that. And then if you don't have the soap and water, hand sanitizer is fine. And a lot of us now are suffering from dry and cracked hands, so the moisturizer is really a good idea.
0: What do you use for moisturizer?
1: Well, you know, I like the ones that don't have any um, odors and are hypoallergenic. So I tend to like Eucerin uh, and Aquaphor. Just because those are kind of good old standbys, they're inexpensive and they're very soothing.
0: Now, talk to us a little bit, Dr. Reese, because uh, for for a whole lot of folks, uh, if you're a caregiver for someone with uh, uh, Alzheimer's or some other degenerative disease, uh, it's very difficult sometimes to communicate. Now, we're going to do a little business at our end, come back to you, and one of the things that would be helpful is explaining uh, the new normal, the need for even more hand-washing, the need to be careful about uh, how we touch each other, hugging and kissing and all those things that perhaps we're part of every day, no longer are. We'll talk about that right here on 930 AM, The Answer, I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. You may be experiencing anxiety or stress regarding all the news about COVID-19 or what is commonly referred to as coronavirus. You are not alone. Optum is opening its Emotional Support Helpline, providing access to specially trained mental health specialists. This is a toll-free number, and it will be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week for as long as necessary. This is a free service. Anyone in need of emotional support is welcome to call. The number is 866-342-6892. That's 866 342 6892. One more time, 866-342-6892. Thank you for joining us on Caregiver SOS on Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host Carol Zernial on special assignment today dealing with COVID-19 for Wellman Medical Management of the Wellman Charitable Foundation. So I am here in the anchor desk talking to our special guest, Allison Reese. Dr. Reese is an associate professor at the NYU School of Medicine at the Winthrop Research Institute at the NYU Winthrop Hospital up in the Big Apple in, uh, in Manhattan, and we're talking about uh, what families who are caregiving for folks who may have dementia, may have Alzheimer's, uh, need to do to deal with the world as it is now. And I was asking you, Dr. Reese, how do you explain to someone who may not even know who you are how the world has changed and we need to be careful about touching and those kinds of uh, concerns?
1: Well, you know, that is just such a key question, and it's so difficult depending on the person's level of ability to understand. You know, it's something that I think the caregiver has to adjust to that level and try to do it in a way that is comforting, in a way that is as clear as possible to adjust to their ability to absorb the information. And the most important thing is not to spread fear because people are very emotionally tuned in. I think that if you are a caregiver and you're with someone many hours a day, they can sense you're upset. They can feel that vibration from you of anxiety. And that is something you want to try not to communicate. So I think the idea is to incorporate these new things into routine. We all need routine. It's very comforting. And and so we,
0: but the routine has changed from what it was, right?
1: Right. So I think that you have to try to just assimilate into the normal routine new New things that might be a little upsetting at first, but you have to do it in the best way that you can. And people also are are adaptable. You know, there's flexibility, so you're starting a new pattern. I mean, we always wash our hands. Most of us wash our hands before meals, so we're kind of doing something additive. We're bringing in washing hands a little more frequently. We're wearing the mask. The mask is a new thing. But how can we maybe make the mask a little less daunting? Maybe we can decorate masks. We can find, I know I've seen online, beautiful masks, masks that reflect something that the person loves. They have all different patterns and all different uh, characters and things on the masks. I think it really is having a sense of how much can that person absorb and how can it be? walk through without causing so much um, disruption, because you do have to balance, you know, what you do to help a person that is not going to upset them and make the situation worse. So that's really, you know, the way to do it, to try to introduce it in a calm way, and explain it as best you can, um, again, without frightening, and bring in the different aspects of this that maybe also tie into something that they enjoy or something they like.
0: That's good advice. Let me go into the lab with you now for just a moment, because you mentioned uh, that you have been uh, transitioned from the work you were doing uh, in the Alzheimer's research field uh, looking at COVID-19. And I have this vision uh, of you with a little Petri dish, and and you're stirring stuff in there, uh, trying to find the answer to COVID-19's uh, whether it's a vaccine or a treatment, that's probably not what you're doing.
1: Well, you know, it's not, it's, it's not that inaccurate. In other words, what I stir though, at this point is the vision. So in order to do experiments like what we do, which my lab does experiments, we have little Petri dishes and we grow cells and we do all these experiments to try to figure out different problems. So I have to do it first as a thought experiment. So I think about things like COVID-19 in the lung, which is where, you know, it's causing a lot of havoc, Uh, the COVID in the lung causing pneumonia. This is often the cause of the worst cases that that lead to being on the ventilator. So what I'm trying to do is put together a system using human cells in a dish to mimic the lung. So the main pieces of the lung would be the epithelial lining cells in the lung, the white blood cells in the lung, and then the endothelial cells from the blood vessels. So what I would like to do is take those three, grow them together in a dish, and then use the medications that we're testing to see how they work on COVID infection in these cells to figure out what drugs work best and how they work so you can make the drugs even better. So that's kind of in a nutshell, the lab aspect of what I want to do. And of course, then I have to get the funding and the okay to do things like that. But right now I'm writing it up as a potential proposal. And I think that you want to use everything human when you study COVID. It's interesting because you know that a lot of studies use different kinds of models and different um, animals, but I am very much a believer in if you want to find something for humans, you have to start with human cells.
0: And, and the cells that you are uh, collecting, uh, are you looking for stem cells as well?
1: Well, what we use are not stem cells, but primary cells. In other words, they are cells that you can um, obtain that were from um, humans. Right. Uh, like like if you want white blood cells, they're pretty easy to get. You just take blood from a person. Sometimes I use myself, and you spin it down, and you can get white blood cells out of there. Huh. And and, uh, and, and yeah. what
0: about the, uh, uh, the, the virus itself? It, it, are people collecting samples of it for use in this kind of research?
1: Absolutely, they are. And they do it under the most sterile and careful conditions. I would and hope. So in order to do, yeah, in order to do the kinds of experiments I want to do, we have to be in uh, high biosafety levels. Um, and that would be how it would have to be performed, but you have to do it. In other words, if you want to know what this virus is doing to cells, you have to get cells that have been infected with the virus, and you have to see what it did to different aspects of their behavior. Why is it causing this, what we call the cytokine storm? Why do some people get so ill and others don't? I mean, you have to deal with it to answer the questions, and those are the key questions.
0: So I now have a new vision of you, the little girl grows up in Brooklyn, goes on to medical school, and finds the cure for COVID-19. Well, that's a, that's
1: a wonderful vision, but, you know, there are so many people who have infectious disease experience who are working on this. I mean, my experience is much more, um, you know immune system and chronic disease, and infectious disease is an area that I really haven't done. So that's why I was saying to you before, you know, you open up to a new world and you do something that's out of your comfort zone.
0: In the other research you're doing, looking at uh, understanding uh, dementia and Alzheimer's, uh, I had said to you off the air, I'm I'm hanging in there hoping for a cure or a preventative vaccine, which is probably unlikely. Where are we on that research across the country? Do you know?
1: Well, this is what I can tell you. Um, About a year ago, I did a symposium uh, in Florida about the lack of progress in Alzheimer's disease because all of the scientists seem to be on the same page that the amyloid protein is the enemy in Alzheimer's, and we have to get rid of the amyloid protein. So billions upon billions of dollars have been spent to try to get rid of amyloid protein. And lo and behold, every trial of every drug by every company to either make an antibody or a neutralizer or something to get rid of amyloid has been wonderful for mice. We have cured Alzheimer's in every mouse, but it's a total failure in humans. So my team, and I want to say, of course, you know, this is not me. I don't sit by myself. I have the most fantastic team of physicians and scientists I work with. Dr. Irving Gomelin, Dr. Aaron Pinkasoff, Dr. Joshua DeLeon. I just, I have to mention these people because, you know, it's, it's all these wonderful brains that work together. And, again, the Alzheimer's Foundation supports this Mr. Charles Fusillo and Mr. Burke Brodsky. You know, you can't do this without the huge right. funding. I, I owe them incredible debt of gratitude for the foresight they had. But in any event, we realize that the amyloid is a signal of damage. It is a byproduct. But even if you get rid of it, you don't cure the Alzheimer's disease. So we have to go back to first principles. Wow and figure out what went wrong in the cell. Why did the cell start making amyloid? And that happened about 20 years before the person started to show symptoms. So that's where we're looking at. Why is an Alzheimer's neuron different from a normal neuron? What are the things about it that distinguish it? And what about every different person with Alzheimer's? Are their cells damaged in the same way or in different ways. So this is where I, I think, I hope that this is being recognized, that we have to go in this new direction. And in fact, a few weeks ago, I think the Washington Post had an article that said some of the things that we've all been saying for years, wow. that it's, we have to do something different.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, as, as I listen to you, and talking about how we have cured dementia in mice, which is a good thing if you're a mouse. I used to mice. carry a little cartoon around in, in, when I had a wallet. I don't carry wallets anymore. I just carry a dollar or two for the bus. When I carried that cartoon, here's what it was. Two mice talking to each other. They're sitting in a, a, a cage and they're surrounded by stack after stack of saccharin, the old artificial sweetener, and one mouse says to the other mouse, I liked it better when we smoked.
1: There you go. So,
0: so mice have yep. been cured of dementia, thank God.
1: They, they have, and, you know, they ate tons of saccharin, and a few of them got cancer. And, right.
0: I know. Yep. Now, before we let you go, and, and I don't want to put you at war with the uh, uh, COVID-19 people, but if I understand you correctly, uh, we're, we are at least for a period of time uh, setting back research on, on lots of other things like Alzheimer's.
1: I think that, that is a fair statement, and I think you you may know, I don't know about what is happening in Texas, but in New York, around here, a lot of people also delayed their chemotherapy and other kinds of surgeries yes. and other things had to be, you know, put to the side because this right. just took over. It's, it's terrible to have to make those kinds of decisions. I'm not the decision maker in these issues, right. but... This is, this is a consequence.
0: Well, I got to tell you, you've been a delight to talk with them. I'm, I'm sorry that we have run out of time, and I hope that we get a chance. We're going to keep your number handy and get you back on as uh, more and more of this story breaks in the news. So, Dr. Reese, thank you for coming on Caregiver SOS On Air.
1: Thank you so much. It was an incredible pleasure and honor, and um, I'm happy to talk to you anytime. Thank well, you.
0: I'd like to come and buy my bagels fresh from Brooklyn.
1: Oh, we have the best bagels, <laughs> I but know the you.
0: stores are all closed <laughs> now. <laughs> I know you do. All right, got to run. Thank you, Allison Thank Reese, you. a uh, physician up at NYU. Thank you. I'm Ron Aaron. This has been Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer.